Hello, we're very happy to have Professor Bert together um, for us for the Women in Data Science and Statistics um, uh, Senior Interest, sorry, a special interest group uh, of the Royal Statistical Society. Um, uh, today we have Professor Sheila Bert, who is an eminent statistician. She has been awarded for honors of the Royal Statistical Society. She's the only one who has achieved so, so thus far. And she has been a, a senior member of uh, the MRC Biostatistic Unit of Cambridge since 1980. So um, welcome, Sheila. And if I may, I would like to ask you the you know, very basic question first. Why statistics? A marvelous maths teacher, uh, Lewis Grant, who introduced me to statistics whilst I was at secondary school. And I went up to uh, Aberdeen University to read mathematics and, and did statistics and logic in my first year yeah. and decided that I would do joint honours in mathematics statistics. Uh, and, and that degree had been on the statute book for quite a number of years, but nobody had actually taken it up. And so I was uh, experimental in that sense. <laughs> I have a, a short question, the keys of that. So when my mother was studying political economy in the 1960s, probably ahead of you, but um, she was told she shouldn't do the second course in statistics because no women ever passed it. Did you have any similar experience? It made her mad and then she took it anyway and passed it. <laughs> do, do you have any similar experiences or, or, or what was it like to study statistics as a woman back then? Uh, I wasn't aware that it was any different from uh, no. studying as a, as a man. Uh, the, there were just two of us who were doing joint honours. Uh, Irene Marioni uh, was doing joint honours economic statistics. And so we had uh, an enormously privileged undergraduate career in that Professor David Courage taught us statistical consultancy by having us sit in whilst he conducted his statistical consultancy. And so we learned by watching, as it were, how he teased out the elements of a problem uh, and and he was himself a medical statistician, and and uh, so his practice at that time uh, in the 1970s uh, was that he would not see an, uh, an MD student without the consultant also being present, because he said that's the guy, the consultant who's going to have more students that I need to make sure understands. And, and so there were many lessons that it was a, a huge privilege to learn as an undergraduate. Well, you opened a very interesting topic here because uh, that implies that people from another discipline would like a statistician in order to actually make inference. And if I'm not mistaken, you have actually been working uh, interdisciplinary in the sense that you have been working also with policymakers. Yes, yes. Um, What's your experience from that? Well, perhaps it takes a little longer to have 
policy, change in policy come into effect uh, because it's not, it's not always clear who the change maker is. The person who's the policy lead in, in the civil service is not ultimately the decision maker. The decision maker is the, the minister. And sometimes the civil servants are more cautious, perhaps, mm -hmm. than their ministers would be. So sometimes you need to try and make sure that you get around the civil servants and manage to talk directly to the decision maker. And it's not always easy to do that. But it does sometimes work very well. <laughs> and is that something you learned from experience or did anyone give you mentoring in starting to interact between statistics and policy or was it something you had to learn on the job? I think it was something that I had to learn on the job. Uh, and, and so, for example, one of the early instances of, of having to get around civil servants uh, was in terms of organ donation. And um, I think Hoffenberg report had said there ought to be an audit of deaths in intensive care units to see how many people uh, actually suffered brainstem death and were potential solid organ donors. Uh, and it was clear to me that if those audits were conducted in different ways in different regions of the country, they would not necessarily be able to be brought together uh, and, and give a national picture. And also, the questions asked might differ from one place to another, and they might not be as logically coherent as they needed to be. And therefore, it seemed to me that, that it was necessary to have a national audit but there were there were concerns on the parts of hospitals and so on. They did not want necessarily to be identified. And so I proposed that there would be a regional coordinator and the research team would work through that regional coordinator. The regional coordinator would know which hospital A10 was, whereas I would know only that it was a hospital in Region A. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I managed to write to Edwina Curry, who was the then minister, uh, who responded, well, this isn't the way we usually do things, but I can see the sense of it. And that was it. <laughs> so, you know, I haven't always been so fortunate in getting uh, uh, such a sharp minister. Uh, but uh, but on that occasion, it worked to Jim. And, and we set it up very quickly and, and uh, had very good collaboration with the intensive care units up and down the country. And within the first three months, we had demonstrated that it was not, that the problem was not that doctors failed to ask. The problem was relatives' refusal. And there had been at the, at the time planned legislation to uh, enforce asking by doctors. And so very quickly we were able to show that that was not the problem. Um, so it, it seems that there, that there was a gap between, again, between um, the pol policymaker um, and, the pe and the people who actually um, needed some 
consultancy. So uh, would you recommend other statisticians to try um, uh, and be in the in-between persons uh, when it comes to policy? Yes, when you when you understand an area uh, as I did in terms of transplantation and and uh, the the immense gift of life and quality of life that donor organs are uh, at a time of great sadness for families, but um, but there can be uh, benefit to that family to think that life has been given. Uh, and and so I understood uh, the the need for organ donation. I understood the uh, the power that the audit could have if it was suitably sized and commonly questioned, as it were, and the need for rigor, absolute logical rigor, in how you went from one question to the next, so that the you know. Uh, uh, so that the flowchart was was complete, and and that suitability uh, for heart donation is not the same as suitability for liver donation or kidney donation or corneal donation, and so you have to ask about those things succinctly but separately, and and so it was you know, and of course I uh, worked on that uh, questionnaire with Dr. Charles Hines, who was an intensive care specialist. So again interdisciplinary, knowing knowing the field, knowing from a statistical perspective the pitfalls that there will be if this goes off, off half-cocked and therefore that you are in a position to make sure it doesn't. You know how to deliver and you know you can deliver, you just need to get the route to being able to offer that support. And of course, being a medical research council scientist uh, was an enormous benefit uh, because my salary was paid. It wasn't dependent on whatever. And as an MRC scientist, you have uh, uh, elements of freedom to do the work that you think is important and, and will make impact. And that work certainly made impact. And part of that story is, of course, being able to either, as you say, design uh, any studies you need to be able to come to sharp conclusions, but also the availability of data in, in general. Uh, are there any other anecdotes you could tell us that reflect on the importance of getting the right data or having the right data? Yes, well, of course, that, as you say, was a case of designing the data collection to make sure it was right. That is quite different from using data that are lying around, uh, which seldom fit all the logical criteria. <laughs> so another example, my, my earliest, uh, or at least I think of it as my earliest uh, encounter with record linkage uh, was in the early 1990s, when we wanted to bring together the clinical record of HIV in, male HIV infected injectors in Edinburgh with their incarceration history in Edinburgh Prison, which is the, the local prison, of course, for, uh, for the Lothian region. And uh, Dr. Ray Brettel was the consultant in infectious diseases uh, and, and had a research cohort of HIV infect, male HIV-infected injectors. 
uh, Edinburgh, because it was the HIV capital for injecting drug use uh, really in Europe, was uniquely positioned uh, to bring together the clinical and criminal you know, incarceration record of those persons. And so we needed to protect medical confidentiality and we needed to protect uh, the prisoner's confidentiality. So for instance, a patient of Ray's may have chosen not to disclose to their doctor that they had been in prison. So Ray should not know something about his patients that the patients haven't chosen to tell him. Equally, uh, Sean Seaman, who was my doctoral student uh, and, and was doing this work with me, he and I were going to be going into Edinburgh prison to abstract the prison histories. Uh, it was important that we did no, not know for any male on our list of over 700 who was HIV infected and who was not. And so Dr. Brettel embedded the names, date of birth, address of his HIV infected male patients in as many other names of male patients who were not HIV infected. And so we looked up every uh, such name on uh, the, uh, the card index that the prison held for past um, uh, prisoners and abstracted from that card index the date of uh, reception and release, uh, you know, every date of reception and release for each name on our list. Um, but we abstracted it onto a database which was indexed by what we call the master index, the sandex of the surname, the gender and the date of birth of the individual. Uh, because that master index was how we held the clinical record uh, of the male injecting drug users, um, uh, male HIV infected injecting drug users. And, and so Sean was able to merge the clinical and the prison record, but Dr. Brettel never had access to the combined record. And, and that caught us out at the proof stage because just when we had proof of the paper in the British Medical Journal, and Ray was rereading it, and we said that none of his patients had died in prison, he said, that's not right. One of his patients had died in prison. What on earth has gone wrong? Because we'd, we'd you know, done a 10% resample abstraction and so on to check our own performance at abstraction. And then we realize that when somebody dies in prison, uh, there is always a fatal accident inquiry. And that record card mm -hmm. that we were consulting is part of the evidence for the fatal accident inquiry. And therefore, it is no longer in the alphabetic holding. Oh. That was the explanation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how everybody's happy, kind of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not, not exactly particularly happy, but yeah, you see my, my point. Yes. But th that's an interesting thing because, um, you know, you, from what, what you said, you could actually en enumerate all of the patients, right? But now I, I, I really don't like the question that I'm about to ask, but now that we're moving towards big data and in the area and in an era where, you know, we, their patients are of um, hundreds of thousands, for example, 
do you think that that um, um, a thing could be um, done again? Uh, yes, yes, it could be done again. Um, uh, there was there were very specific reasons that we wanted uh, those, that incarceration history because uh, the clinical community in Edinburgh believed that most of the zero conversions had happened in the second six months of 1983, almost before anybody knew anything about it. Mm -hmm. and, and so one of the analyses that was part of Sean's doctoral work uh, was to look at uh, the uh, the zero conversion, the narrowed zero conversion intervals, for, and and to work out the extent to which transmission had been occurring in the prison. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there was also another question, which was that during incarceration, uh, actually the the quality of life of those individuals might be improved because they're not chasing after drugs to the same extent as, as they are outside. So they might uh, have better diet and, and their general health might improve during incarceration. And therefore, um, their HIV progression could even be slowed. During, so that was another issue. And and we were also concerned about uh, the non-HIV related causes of death. And, and that's what led us uh, ultimately to, to being concerned um, about overdose death soon after release from prison. Because the very first quantification of that high risk uh, came from that original study of the uh, deaths, uh, overdose deaths in the fortnight following release from prison for those HIV-infected injectors. And, and people then said, well, perhaps that's because they're HIV-infected and it doesn't apply to injectors more generally. And so Professor Shavon Hutchinson and I set up a subsequent study um, which looked at mortality deaths in the 12 weeks following release from prison, uh, looking specifically at drugs-related deaths in the first fortnight versus the subsequent 10 weeks and non-drugs. And, and that study confirmed seven times higher risk of overdose death in the first fortnight versus comparable other times at liberty. So it wasn't specific to the HIV-infected injectors. But the, the first quantification was through the semen study. So almost like for, fortuitous, because you had the data, you were able to look at that hypothesis. Well, it wasn't specific. It wasn't a specific prior hypothesis um, at that time, but we were concerned about the impact of, on car of incarceration on morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. and, that's it. And, and the mortality for those guys was either their HIV-related mortality or, or other causes. And of course, because they're injecting drug users, overdose deaths are, are a major other, the major other cause. So it was sort of obvious that you would look at that, though it, it wasn't a, a specific prior hypothesis. 
given the many um, other sort of political aspects related to HIV, was it hard to get uh, ethics permissions to do studies like these? Well, the, the, the Seaman study, as I refer to it, that uh, was the first study that Dr. Brettel, who's a consultant in infectious diseases, do, leading much of the HIV work in Edinburgh, it was the first time he had had to appear personally before the Ethics Committee to justify a study. So he and I both appeared before the Ethics Committee uh, uh, to explain why we wanted to bring together the clinical record and the incarceration record and the Chinese walls that we had between members of the research team to protect medical and prisoner confidentiality. And then somebody on the ethics committee and uh, said, well, but you know, what if somebody found out that we were doing this study? And I said, well, of course they're going to find out because we're going to publish the results. <laughs> really important. And this is the only place in Europe that it can be done. <laughs> and it was out soon for him. So again, it was just you know, prisons are a sort of hidden part of society, almost hidden from most of us, and. Uh, so it was a sort of natural reaction, but the, the ethics committee was perfectly at ease with the, and, and in fact, very, very pleased that our intention was, was the public. And, and again, we were very fortunate in that there was a remarkable governor, John Pierce, who was the governor of Edinburgh prison. And uh, he was very keen on, on research uh, and, and saw it, the, the results of research as being a platform for the prison service to move things forward. And without those results, it was more difficult uh, with a press that was sometimes hostile to prisoners to do things to benefit prisoners. But if you had a research evidence that said that this was you know, going to, to be beneficial, uh, then that helped the service. And, and, and so we had tremendous cooperation from the Scottish business. That sounds really a, a really important piece of work. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you have also been uh, working on th um, statistics related to army as well. Is that, is that correct? Yes, yes. And of course, there was a prison link there because my late husband, uh, Graham Bird and I first encountered Clive Fairweather as uh, Scotland's remarkable chief inspector of prisons. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was some time uh, before I realised that he had had an illustrious military career before becoming the chief inspector of prisons. And in fact, he was 13 years in our special airborne service and was second in command at the Iranian embassy siege. Uh, and, and I, in one conversation, made the mistake of referring to the, um, uh, the maroon berries, carrots, <laughs> tan berry for the SAS. <laughs> so I, I went off and bought myself some books um, about the SAS and, and read up 
And, and then later, uh, I'd be here. Clive would be, be in conversation with Clive. I was thinking, I've heard this story before. And I realized that it was a chapter in the book. And they always refer to the guy as boss, never by name, of course, because you were an SAS soldier. I said, That was you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so by that time, I'd, I'd learned something about his, his military career. And, and so when the wars began in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, I worked with Colonel Fairweather on military fatality rates in Iraq and Afghanistan by nationality and corps. And of course, as when he'd been in the SAS, he had been in Afghanistan in, in you know, the 1980s or before, whenever, exactly when, I'm not quite sure. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and again, you know, you choose your collaborators well, because when you want to get something through to the right person, Clive could get our messages through. And, and each of our reports we, was sent in advance. We, we um, uh, reported on a regular basis, uh, typically when the number of UK fatalities, uh, uh, the inter-reporting interval was determined such that there were about 16 UK additional UK fatalities. Um, and, and that prompted another report. Each report was sent to the Surgeon General or, or uh, 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 Surgeon Admirable, ad, we're Admirable, Admiral, uh, <laughs> before we released it. And on only one occasion uh, did they ask us to hold up a report uh, because the Americans actually were about to disrupt exactly the issue that we were highlighting in the report. And that was something in Iraq, um, because there was we'd noticed a pattern in the use of, of um, uh, explosive devices, uh, a, diom, you know, a weekday pattern, and they were about to do something about it. So that one caused a little bit of consternation. But, but otherwise, there was no no holdup. And and one of the most important things that uh, from a statistic perspective uh, was that when the Taliban were laying more and more uh, improvised explosive devices, then uh, you would expect that our experts would have to exploit, as they, as they called it, just a certain number uh, of those devices to learn about the bomb making of the enemy. Uh, and therefore, if the enemy was putting more out there and you need to uh, exploit 100 to learn, uh, then your 100 is now a lower proportion of the number that's gone out there than it was before. So the death rate of our experts should be decreasing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. That got a change of practice. That, that message going back up the line, the, the army changed practice very quickly. Uh, and, and again, that 
was helped very much by Clive's inside route and and our being able to talk to the right people to take the decisions to make a difference. Yes, so, so we don't so, make the difference, but but they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do. That I was about to say that there's a pattern here. You find out what's going wrong, and then you know you find how to fix it, and then you go to the right person and say that there's a problem, and I know the solution, or I can help you yes. solve the problem. Yes. Yeah, and 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 provided you've explained it sufficiently clearly in the terms of the the person whom you you want to influence if as it were so that they understand it well enough that they can act uh that's great it doesn't always happen that way well it depends on the person who conveys the message right <laughs> i mean <laughs> yes well, what i mean is i don't always succeed <laughs> I wouldn't say so, Sheila, but yeah, I get the point. Yeah, and, and it, again, that's a, 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 a matter of policy making, right? So sometimes you, you need to jump in and start uh, tr trying to make an effort so that things uh, change when you see that they do not work in the right way, as you uh, noticed, for example, with the rate of the death rate of uh, people or of experts. And you've also worked on problems with variant CJD. And um, were there any particular learnings from helping policymakers in that question? Because I remember at the time there was a lot of discussion and, and uh, lack of clarity about how long time it could be before people developed the disease. And um, I was wondering if you had any particular um, anecdotes that illustrate the difficulties of, of coming up with policy when there's so many unknowns. Well, there, uh, a great benefit was working on uh, European level, an ad hoc uh, TSE uh, uh, group, and being able to uh, institute surveillance in, first of all, cattle, uh, but then in sheep for uh, scrapie, which is one of the spongiform and cephalopathies. Um, and uh, so the European Union required that all cattle over the age of 30 months uh, that were coming to slaughter at abattoir would have a, 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 late, a, a test for late stage um, evidence of, of BSE. And then we wanted to have similar surveillance in place uh, in sheep uh, for scrapie because some scrapie might masquerade as BSE. And classical scrapie was under very strong genetic control. It was thought to be absolute. If you have a particular genotype, you can't get it at all. Uh, uh, but the surveillance that we designed uh, which was that each country initially should test 100,000 uh, adult sheep coming to abattoir and uh, a random sample of 500 uh, who would be genotyped so that you would get the genotype of each national flock, if you like. Uh, then there was a little bit of interference by the civil servants who remembered that 
um, in fallen cattle, the BSE rate is about 10 times higher than in cattle coming uh, to healthy slaughter. So they thought, oh, right, well, we can reduce from 100,000 sheep to 50,000 sheep, and we'll have 5,000 fallen sheep. Except, as you know, the sheep fall on the hills. They don't fall conveniently on the farmer's front door. <laughs> and, so, uh, and also, the 500 uh, for genotyping were from healthy sheep. But they'd forgotten that if you really were serious about looking at fallen sheep as well, then you needed a random sample of 500 being genotyped. So that was... So the design got a little bit messed up in the translation. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it worked uh, for, the healthy, for the healthy sheep uh, and showed in its first six months that classical scrapie, the genetic control was not absolute because there were some examples of classic scrapie in the genotype that supposedly never got it. And there was also atypical scrapie that was under a different genetic control. And so it really revolutionized understanding of scrapie. Um, meanwhile, back in Blighty, uh, the civil service here set up a sheep committee, um, <laughs> uh, at, at which I was present. Uh, and and various other, it was chaired by Sir Roy Anderson and, and Sir David Cox was there and various others. So this sheep committee uh, had been set up, I think, with the idea that the UK, that this was too high a requirement and, and the UK would not be doing this. And of course, the committee said, no, no, this is exactly how it should be designed. <laughs> So the chief committee never met again. <laughs> <laughs> the UK contributed well to that survey. <laughs> That's quite the story. That's very interesting. <laughs> and um, in terms of nowadays, people often say there's so much data everywhere. You don't need to design studies and you can just use found data for any problem that you have. Uh, have you? So observational studies are, of course, different, as we said before, uh, to design studies. But I think just found data is different yet again, even from observational studies. <laughs> um, do you think how we use data in the future is going to be different and we're going to incorporate things like found data from social media and various other formats? Well, I must say I have not analysed uh, or attempted to analyse social media data. Uh, I don't play those games myself. So having, having uh, served on the Science Advisory Committee of the Home Office, I'm far too security conscious to uh, use social media to any extent. Um, there, it, it has had a recent success uh, in terms of the laboratory in Wolverhampton that was receiving uh, PCR tests that were taken to adjudicate uh, a lateral flow positive test 
And that laboratory was returning a nominally high proportion of negative adjudications. And the public became aware, stories on social media, informed journalists, big story. And the formal report is not out yet, um, but you can sort of see from the national data. We don't, we don't know what proportion of all the PCR adjudication tests following a lateral flow positive were handled by that laboratory. But the negative rate at the period of operation of that laboratory, the negative rate for the whole of England, <laughs> had doubled. <laughs> so, I mean, that was something glaringly had changed. Mm-hmm. And and so, although I'm not of the cotton skinty in in terms of use of of, of social, very large effects can be identified, and and that's that's a case in point. Whereas, of course, we also have in terms of even observational data in uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the Invermectin and the hydrochloroquine, was it, or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, treatments that were falsely paraded as having effectiveness when, in fact, they did not, as shown in, in robustly in randomised controlled trials. So what I hope is that we will actually have a resurgence of attention to experimental design, because if you do it well, it delivers phenomenally, efficiently, cheap, cost-effectively. So you think that if we were to redesign our undergraduate degrees in statistics, we should refocus with experimental design because in most degrees, it's almost been removed, right? Exactly, and I think this is a huge disservice to statistical science. Yes, uh, there's a risk as well that the people who know it don't talk very much with the other methodological statisticians to both groups' detriment, because, yeah. yeah. Um, and you chose to go into biostatistics. Was that because of your earlier story where you'd seen examples of applied statistics in the field, or was that the conscious decision that you made for a particular reason? Well, two answers to that. Um, the, the, the primary one is that Professor David Kerridge, who was my professor at Aberdeen, was himself a medical statistician. I had applied uh, to join the sort of fast stream statistical government statistical service. I'd done some vacation jobs uh, in the government statistical service in Scotland. So I went down to London for an uh, interview and uh, we were shown a sort of table of, of numbers and, and asked to write half a page explaining what that table meant. And I said to them, you know, a first year student in statistics at Aberdeen could do this. I don't need an honours degree to do this. <laughs> and, and, and then there was a sort of conversation. I have a, I have a lazy eye. And, and so I was seated 
sort of side on this way, talking to this person. And there was another person in the corner to my left. And except when I turned towards him, I didn't realize he was writing furiously as, if, you know, as I, uh, I was speaking. And there just happened to be uh, a conversation going on at the time about politics and Scottish nationalism. So I upped the aggro. I came back to Aberdeen and I told David Courage about this interview. Anyway, I was duly offered the post and I turned it down. And they wrote to me and, and said, well, we're interested to know why people who go through our rather arduous and expensive selection <laughs> of people and turn us down. Would you mind answering the following questionnaire? So I go through the questionnaire and, and towards the end of it, there's the question, do you ever intend to apply for a civil service job again? And of course, this is a, you know, a... a, a an identified respondent. So I tore it up and wrote them a letter on how not to design a questionnaire if you wanted frank answers. <laughs> so, so David then came and found me in the library and said there's a research assistant post at Edinburgh University uh, in medical statistics. I think you should apply for it. I suggest you take a different line to the, to the interview this time. <laughs> Maybe he should have said the interview should take a different line with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so I joined the Medical Computing and Statistics Unit, uh, which was headed by uh, Walter Lutz, who died only in the last two or three years. Um, and he was a marvellous first boss. Uh, he basically said, you know, if you file up, tell me about it. I'll defend you to the outside. I might ball you out inside, but I'll deal with an outside. I can't deal with what I don't know about. Uh, so that was one. And the second one, we were supposed to be helping with statistical consultants. And so on. And he said, the first time somebody comes, you know, at the end of a study and, and you know, seeking help to try and rescue the study, as it were, be as helpful as you can. If that same person comes again at the end of a study, show them the door. We don't have time to waste with no hope for that. rules was terrific. Yes. I mean, it wasn't your job to fix if something had gone wrong for someone else multiple times. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, thinking into the future, so... Uh, now, a lot of the hype is in artificial intelligence, data science, so sort of, well, to us, probably it would seem like statistics has uh, um, gone out and, and infiltrated many other areas. Um, do you think this infiltration is going to come back and change how statistics itself happens? I mean, of course, we're seeing changes in computation. Um, but in in uh, approaches, right? Because statisticians are always seen to be negative, right? We're often telling people what they can't do, and often computer scientists are seen to be positive. And many of these areas that Stats now has strong interface with um, are computational can-do areas. Do you think that's going to change how statistics works? Uh, I think the 
I think the can-do attitude is is important, and and uh, I think using uh, computational methods as well as statistical methods to make discoveries in in data. Uh, almost, you know, it, it, it widens the, the, the set of skills that's available and, and the potential for visualization of data through, through uh, AI techniques is, I think, really exciting. But of course, when it comes down to demonstrating that a particular approach works for patients or whatever, then the demonstrating effectiveness is still a statistical issue, ultimately. It is a matter of statistical inference. Uh, and that has to be a design study uh, to demonstrate that, that what you're pulling through from artificial intelligence um, is going to work reliably. And, and then there will be new challenges in how you update that authentication when you got essentially feedback loop, which is what you have, which is what the, the you know one of the great benefits that you're no longer having a static uh, uh, sort of uh, form of analysis, but but the fluidity uh, that is added. So so we will need to design more carefully how we do follow-up evaluations and, and so on. But I think that's, uh, you know, that's an exciting area to, to pursue. Uh, and, and I think also just in, in, you know, as I said, visualization, but also in things like biodiversity and, and so on and, and environmental science and climate change. Many of the things are genuinely multivariate which statistics hasn't been just tremendously great at, uh, and and that also is an area where where I think uh, the merging of uh, approaches to visualizing and managing data and 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 new inference um, will be important for the future. Uh, I think that that's part of the point of uh, what um, Sophia said. So, yeah, uh, statistics, we haven't been doing great in the multivariate space and that's because we had computational uh, uh, problems. But now that the computational problems seems to be seem to be easily easily de de dealt with because of uh, um, com you know the uh, efforts of computer scientists, then maybe now we can also uh, uh, Go explore the multidimensionality of data and go through this direction, go towards this direction. Yes, yes, indeed. Which is quite exciting, actually, right? <laughs> now absolutely. we can absolutely, and and you know, and and in in medical statistics, the whole notion of 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 targeting particular systems and so on, and then uh, you know, being able to move from animal models to uh, 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 and testing out drugs in humanized animals and, and so on to then uh, you know, deliver a front end uh, for human patients ultimately there's still going to be uh, you know uh, a randomized evaluation going on uh, but 
but they will be very differently designed if the the pull through has been as successful as as the science. So again, I think there's uh, you know huge potential in in terms of Bayesian inference in pulling that information through in a much more rigorous way uh, than perhaps has been the case as we've gone from phase one studies through phase two studies and and so on because we've essentially been dealing with the same thing just larger and larger whereas the new approach is really quite different in the way drugs are being targeted for specific uh, types of patient uh, and I think that will change how we, we do the front-end evaluation as well. Great. Maria, do you have more questions or is this the point where we say thank you? I think this is the point that we say thank you. We have already took advantage of your time. I mean, yes. we're... <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> sorry for that. But it's just a pleasure listening to you, so apologies. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank Bye -bye. you very much.